0: welcome back to the stock car racing time machine podcast i'm your host tim namen today you're listening to episode 24 the 1997 running of the pepsi 400 from the daytona international speedway this was the 16th race of the nascar winston cup season and when the race concluded it would mark the halfway point in the season the race would be run on july 5th 1997. now just a quick housekeeping item last week's podcast we talked about the california 500 that was run in fontana And there was actually a week off in between the California 500 and the Pepsi 400 at Daytona. But to better align our podcast with the dates, I've decided to skip over the off weekend and talk about the Pepsi 400 because we have essentially 4th of July long weekend coming up anyways. So what was interesting about the 1997 Pepsi 400 was it was the last scheduled race in Daytona in the summer to be run during the day. NASCAR had announced that next year's Pepsi 400 would be run under the lights for the 1998 season. The Pepsi 400 traditionally always started at either 10 or 11 a.m. This was twofold. First of all, it tried to keep the temperatures a little bit cooler in the Florida heat. In addition to that, the hopes was that running the race earlier in the day, you would avoid that midday thunderstorm or rainstorm that always seems to come to Florida in the summer as well. But there was another reason, too. Bill France thought by running the race earlier in the day, it would help Daytona businesses. People would visit tourist attractions. People could have the opportunity to go to beach. And this was kind of a bit of an unwritten rule that was talked about with the Pepsi 400, the Firecracker 400 at Daytona. Teams certainly put an effort in, and they certainly wanted to win the race. But this was a race that was typically contested on a hot and slick track. There really wasn't usually the big pack restrictor plate racing that we're used to. And most of the time going into the race, the crew chiefs and teams knew that there was probably two or three very serious contenders for victory. So not to say that teams didn't put strong effort into this race, but this was probably a race where the effort was a little bit more lacking compared to other races. Unless you were high up in the points or tended to always be good at Daytona, you might have maybe worked just a little bit less hard on the crew. I know I've heard crew chiefs and teams just kind of talk about this was a race to go. You had what you had with your car, no sense overthinking it, get the race completed, get out of there and go enjoy the beach by about two o'clock. So ESPN. This season had decided to start the race at 11 AM. And the other thing that's interesting with the Pepsi 400 or previously called the firecracker 400 up until the 1987 season, the race was always run on the 4th of July regardless of what day of the week that fell on. So you could have a race on a Tuesday. You could have the race on a Thursday. With the start of the 1988 season, they decided to run it the first Saturday in July, closest to whenever the 4th of July fell. Um, And of course, there was one race uh, that was rained out, uh, I'd say about six or seven years ago that had to be run in the afternoon. But again, scheduled race, this was the last scheduled race to be run during the day at daytona for a july race so the firecracker 400 couple just other interesting facts about the race the race did start in 1959 but bill france's plan was actually to run a usac indycar 300 mile race at the track unfortunately in practice the speeds were just too high in testing for this race there were a couple serious accidents one actually took the life of one of the more respected IndyCar drivers and Marshall Teague and France decided to call off an IndyCar race and instead decided to hold a 100-lap, 250-mile NASCAR race. And then a few years down the road, they expanded the race to a 400-mile race. There have been lots of memorable moments in the Firecracker 400 slash Pepsi 400. Everyone remembers David Pearson in 1974, he and Petty were running 1-2, coming the white flag. Pearson backed off, going to the 1-2, and two, let Petty get a nearly seven-card-length lead, and then was able to slingshot around him and turn four and win the race. Another very memorable moment was Richard Petty winning the 1984 Pepsi 400 slash Firecracker 400 with Ronald Reagan, the president in attendance. And then we also had Richard Petty in his farewell tour in 1992. He got to start on the outside of the front row. Sterling Marlin had actually won the poll, although Petty had been on the poll for much of poll day. And it was a memorable moment as Petty was able to lead a few laps early in the race. Unfortunately, his car started to experience handling problems, and Petty had been out in the Florida heat, early morning heat for a long period of time as they were honoring him before the race. In addition, President Bush had shown up at the race and Petty eventually had to get out of the race car because he was having he was having, he was overheating himself and he was just drained and dehydrated. So, qualifying for the Pepsi 400 would take place on July 3rd and the pole sitter for the Daytona 500 would also be the pole sitter for the Pepsi 400 and that was Mike Skinner. So Skinner the rookie was on the pole. His t- teammate Dale Earnhardt qualified second. John and Jetty qualified third, and remember, he had been really strong at Talladega. Many believed he had one of the best cars, but he didn't have much drafting help late in the race, and he finished fourth. Jeff Gordon had won the Daytona 500 and also was the 1995 winner of the Pepsi 400, would start fifth, fourth. Jimmy Spencer, the winner of the 1994 Pepsi 400, his first career NASCAR Winston Cup win, would start fifth. Rusty Wallace, who had never won a restrictor plate race and only had one top five ever in restrictor plate racing, would start sixth. Very surprising effort from Billy Standridge. He had struggled for much of the season, but he had qualified seventh. Michael Walchip was the eighth fastest qualifier. Rick Mass qualified ninth. Lake Speed was the tenth fastest qualifier. Good effort in the Melling car. Joe Nemechek was the eleventh fastest qualifier. And Dick Trickle qualified twelfth. Other notable qualifiers included Dale Jarrett. He qualified sixteenth. Bill Elliott qualified 17th. Remember, Bill was very good in the Daytona 500, finished 4th when all the Hendrick cars passed him late in the race. Mark Martin, the winner at Talladega, the most recent restrictor plate track, qualified 18th. Bobby Labonte was the 20th fastest qualifier. Sterling Marlin had problems in first round qualifying, had to settle for a 30th place qualifying effort. And Terry Labonte qualified 35th. When we look at the did not qualify, Jeff Green failed to qualify in the number 29 cartoon network car for Gary Bechtel. This was after he came off an excellent seventh place finish at California. Loy Allen attempted to jump at the number 91 little Joe Falk car. and He was unable to qualify too as well. And the 91 team had released Mike Wallace after Mike had failed to qualify at California, but he had run second in the Winston West race. After this race, Joe Falk Racing would take a bit of a break and try to reorganize before they'd run races in the 1997 season. Jeff Bodine's disaster season continued. He missed the first race of the 1997 season, and this was his second career did not qualify. He failed to qualify at Sonoma in 1996. In six of the past seven races, Jeff Bodine had finished 35th or worse, and he had dropped from 7th to 30th in points. That precipitous drop in points in eight race, in that eight-race stretch had led him so far down the points that he was unable to get a provisional. So when we looked at the favorites for this race, for the Pepsi 400, you certainly had to point toward the Hendrick cars. Jeff Gordon had won at the Daytona 500, and he had finished fifth at Talladega. Terry Labonte had been second at the Daytona 500, and he had finished sixth at Talladega. Earnhardt looked very strong at Talladega and finished second. And of course, he was second when he crashed late in the Daytona 500. Bill Elliott probably had the best car in the Daytona 500, and he had come home a strong fourth. You never can count out Sterling Marlin, even though it had really been a disaster season for Sterling. His only top five was at the Daytona 500. The team had struggled mightily. They had mechanical problems at Talladega, but you just always had to believe that that number four Kodak Films Chevrolet for Morgan McClure racing was going to be up front, especially at Daytona. Mark Martin, of course, had to feel pretty confident. He had just come off of his victory at Talladega in the Winston 500 back in early May. And you had to look at John Andretti too. Most believe that he had had a very strong car in practice. The question for John Andretti, would he get enough help late in the race? And would people try to gang up on him as someone who had not run up front in a lot of restrictor plate races, Bobby Labonte had been solid in the two restrictor plate races and Dale Jarrett, a guy you expect to be very good in the restrictor plate races, had yet to lead a lap in a restrictor plate race. He'd had a decent car and, of course, was among the top five at the Daytona 500 when he crashed out along with his teammate Ernie Irvin. And then when they went to Talladega, he had experienced engine problems and was never able to really be a serious contender. So as I talked about earlier, I think one of the coolest things about the Pepsi 400 when they ran it was that they the race was run in the morning. I just thought this was so cool as a kid. I always liked sports that had unique start times, like you could wake up and watch the Wimbledon final. Um, You watching F1 races early in the day when they would play a college football game uh, the day after Thanksgiving that would start at 11 a.m. Or other college football fans remember on January 1st, they would always play the Outback Bowl from Tampa at 11. So I remember as a teenager, probably crawling out of bed about 9.45, Popping on ESPN two, watching RPM today. Not today, watching NASCAR today, and then getting ready to watch this race at 11 a.m. I just thought it was a super cool thing that they were starting this race at 11 a.m. And remember, also, this was one of two Saturday races on the NASCAR Winston Cup Series because at this time, the Brickyard 400 was still being run on a Saturday. Remember when they came up with this race they decided to run it on Saturday? to not be sacrilegious to the Indy 500. So you actually had two Saturday day races at this time. Um, And then, of course, you had Saturday night races being the fall Richmond race and then the Saturday night race at Bristol, which took place in August, too, as well. So for this race review, I'm going to do things a little bit differently. It's really challenging with the restrictor plate racing to track every single lead change on every lap. You know, when we do these race reviews and we're on a short track or road course or an intermediate track, you know, you can say, oh, this guy moved in the sixth position. This guy moved in the top 10. That's very challenging to do on a restrictor plate race when the cars are running side by side and positions are constantly swapping. So we're going to take more of a general overview of different position changes, but maybe not be quite as in depth with every position change within the top 10 until we get a little bit later deeper into the race. So. The green flag came out, and of course, the Richard Childress teammates were on the front row with Mike Skinner on the pole and Dale Earnhardt on the outside pole. Very quickly, after the green flag, Dale Earnhardt tried to get to the inside of John Andretti off of turn two for second position. Jeff Gordon decided to go to the outside of John Andretti, and Rusty decided to follow Dale Earnhardt on the bottom of the racetrack. Mike Skinner was able to lead the first couple laps of the race, but Andretti quickly showed his strength. He was able to grab the lead in the trioval after two laps were completed. Very early in the race, Steve Grissom was experiencing problems. It was reported he was slow, and he was concerned that his car was down at least one cylinder. Jeff Gordon was able to get the outside of number 31 car and make the pass in the trioval, And then he swept the inside of John Andretti off of turn two, and they raced side-by-side side down the backstretch into turn three. Gordon was able to grab the lead by about half a car length on the bottom of the racetrack. Gordon led one lap, but John Andretti quickly regained the lead, and Gordon and Dale Earnhardt were side-by-side for the second position. There were four lead changes in the first five laps, with Mike Skinner, Jeff Gordon, John Andretti, and John Andretti grabbing the lead on two separate occasions. Number 41 car experienced engine problems. It was reported they went back behind the wall. There was a five-car breakaway at the front, with these cars running single foul, with John Andretti leading, Dale Earnhardt in second, Rusty Wallace in third, Michael Waltrip having a strong day in fourth, and Jeff Gordon was fifth after 10 laps were completed in the race. It was reported on the broadcast that Sterling Marlin had a flat left front tire and he lost a lap. Sterling Marlin's difficult 1997 season continued. 14 laps in, and Earnhardt and Skinner were beginning to drop back back in the field to sixth and seventh place, respectively. The lead pack consisted of about 15 cars. There was very little changing for the lead after this, and John Andretti continued to lead the race. The first caution of the race came out on lap 34 when Jimmy Spencer wrecked on the backstretch, and it also collected Mike Skinner, who would have heavy damage to the right front fender area of his race car and his hood. In addition, there was a separate incident that occurred behind this initial wreck with Jimmy Spencer as Billy Standridge hit the wall hard on the backstretch. It also had collected Chad Little, who had significant damage to the front end of his John Deere Pontiac. All the drivers caught up in the in these two separate crashes that brought out the same caution would have poor days. Mike Skinner would get out back out to run just a couple laps but finish 41st. Jimmy Spencer, who spun it didn't get significant damage, was never able to really get his lap back and finish 31st. Billy Standard did not finish the race in 40th, and Chad Little became the first car out of the race. He suffered heavy damage in that second incident when Jimmy Spencer spun and tore up the front of his race car. The heavy damage resulted in Little not being able to complete any more laps and finishing in the 42nd position. Mike Skinner in the crash ended up with heavy right front damage and, as we talked about, was forced to go behind the wall. So there were yellow flag pit stops and Bill Light was actually able to win the race off a pit road. And it looked like Jeff Gordon and John Andretti actually got together as they tried to get off a pit road as Michael Waltrip had swung in front of both of them. Under the caution, as he had done a few other times this season, Brett Bodine decided to stay out and lead a lap. It was reported that the number 25 car of Ricky Craven was forced behind the wall. In that wreck that had occurred on the backstretch, a broken piece of metal had come up through Craven's radiator and severed the radiator. Unfortunately for Ricky Craven, it was another difficult day. He would eventually be able to complete 155 laps, but he was never a serious contender after having to go behind the wall and finished in 37th position. So after the caution flag, the race would restart on lap 38, and we would have a 70-lap green flag run. The top fives that came to the green flag was Bill Elliott leading, John Andretti in second, Michael Waltrip in third, Jeff Gordon in fourth, and Rusty Wallace fifth. So Fords made up four of the top five positions. John Andretti wasted little time. He was able to dive to the inside of Bill Elliott on the first lap after the restart in Turn Three. Elliott was able to at least hold off the challenge of Michael Waltrip and stay in the second position. Fifty laps into the race, John Andretti was leading. Dale Earnhardt was second. Rusty Wallace was third. Bill Elliott was fourth, and Michael Waltrip was fifth. They unfortunately reported on the broadcast that Bill Elliott was dropping back on lap fifty-seven. He believed that he was having an engine problem and was beginning to experience a miss. With 60 laps completed, Sterling Marlin was a lap down, but he was right behind John Andretti, poised to try to get his lap back. Jeff Gordon was starting to experience handling problems on this longer green flag run, and he dropped back to the 11th position. One driver that was surging up to the field and had had a difficult 1997 season was Ward Burton. His number 22, MBNA Pontiac, for Bill Davis Racing, had moved his way up to the fourth position. Dale Earnhardt was looking to go to the front, and he was able to pass Rusty Wallace for the second position around lap 62. Rusty, unfortunately, got stuck in the wrong line. He dropped back to the seventh position just a few laps later. A couple drivers that were having good runs who had not been having that great of a 1997 season included Hutt Strickland and the 1990 winner of the Daytona 500, Derek Cope. Hutt was running in the eighth position, and Derek Cope was running tenth. Ward Burden wanted to get around De Arnard and was able to get the job done and move into the second position on lap 65. Ken Schrader was also having a strong run, and on lap 72, he had moved his way into the fifth position. Wally Dahlenbach was struggling, which was surprising as he usually did pretty well on the restrictor plate tracks, but he was lapped in the 35th position around the halfway point. The race continued to be clean green flag racing, and at the halfway point, John Andretti was leading. And he was absolutely dominating the race. He had led 74 of the first 80 laps of the race. Ward-Burton was running second. Ernie Irvin was third. Dale Earnhardt was in fourth. Michael Waltrip was fifth. Ken Trader was sixth. Rusty Wallace was running seventh. Hutch Strickland was eighth. Dale Jarrett was in the ninth position. And Mark Martin was tenth. So we were seeing certainly a very strong day for the Ford contingent at this point in time. You had Ward-Burton in a Pontiac and Dale Earnhardt in the sh- Chevy. And also Ken Schrader, but the rest of the field was made up of Fords in the top ten. Jeff Gordon continued the struggle, and he had now dropped all the way outside of the top fifteen to the eighteenth position. John and Treddy's crew chief Tony Furr was desperately trying to find someone to pit within Treddy. Interestingly, they made a deal to pit with Jeff Gordon, number twenty four car. Now normally this would be a pretty good bet on a restrictor plate track, but Gordon was back in eighteenth position. So this was interesting because you wondered if the timing would work out correctly for the two cars to leave pit road together. So the two cars came down to pit and fortunately for Andretti, Gordon had a very fast pit stop and he was able to make up some of the distance he was behind John Andretti and Andretti had a decent pit stop. So the two cars were able to come out of the pits and Andretti was able to get in front of Gordon, but they would be able to at least hook up together as they went back out onto the racetrack. When John Andretti pitted, this gave Ward Burton the opportunity to lead a few laps, and he led laps 87 to 89. And then Dale Earnhardt picked up the leads from lap 90 to 91. John Andretti's strong pit stop and being able to hook up with Jeff Gordon after the pit stop allowed him to unlap himself. Bill Elliott came into the pits, and all the crew, the crew did change tires, they were forced to look under the hood, pretty much eliminating any chance of Bill Elliott at having a victory in the Pepsi 400. Ward Burton and Dale Arnard continued to exchange the league during other drivers' green flag put stops. This really wasn't televised on the TV broadcast because they were focusing on most of the green flag pit stops. Now, something that was being focused on during these pit stops was that the Richard Childers team was telling Dale Arnard to stretch his fuel. Larry McReynolds felt that if Dale Arnard could stretch his fuel to lap 97, that Arnard could make it the final 63 laps if there was no caution and have this be his final pit stop of the race. This would be a huge boost for Earnhardt because much of the field, like Andretti and Gordon and the Yates cars, had pitted much earlier, and there was no way that they were going to be able to make it all the way on fuel. Now, this was a disadvantage to Earnhardt because he was really struggling with his tires, and he began to slip back And this strategy where he decided to stay out. Earnhardt finally pitted on lap 97, and he had a 20.5-second pit stop. Cal Petty was able to lead a couple laps until Michael Waltrip. Got inside into the inside of Cal Petty in Turn One and took the lead on Lap 100, but it didn't take long for that strong number 98 RCEA Ford Thunderbird for Kale Yarborough Racing with John Andretti piling it to get back to the front. He got inside of Michael Waltrip in Turn Three and was able to take the lead on Lap 101. So on Lap 102, let's reset the field after all the green flag pit stops were concluded. John Andretti was the leader. Rusty Wallace looking for his first ever restrictor plate. Victory was running second. Michael Waltrip was running third. He, of course, was trying to win his first ever points-paying race. Mark Martin was in fourth. Ken Schrader was fifth. Ward Burton was sixth. Jeff Gordon was in seventh. Ernie Irvin was eighth. Irvin's Yates teammate, Dale Jarrett, was ninth. And Derek Cope was running in the 10th position. There were 33 cars in the lead lap. And the final driver on the lead lap was Dave Marcus, who was running 33rd. A few laps later, the second caution of the race came out. When Ken Schrader hit the wall in turn four, he had flattened the right side of his car and also reported that he had a cut right front tire. There would be yellow flag pit stops as the drivers who had not been able to make it all the way on fuel will now be able to pit. This was disappointing for both Dale Earnhardt and Ricky Rudd. They both were hopeful that they, if there were no more cautions, that they could have made it all the way to the end of the race on fuel. Daryl Waltrip decided to stay out under caution and lead a lap. When the pit stops were completed, four drivers had decided to take two tires. This included Mark Martin, Ward Burden, Jeff Burden, and Derek Cope. Rusty Wallace was in fifth. Ted Musgrave was sixth. Michael Walsh was seventh. John Andretti was eighth. And Jeff Gordon was running in the ninth position. The race would restart on lap 113. And Mark Martin continued to lead the race. And Sterling Marlin was trying to fight his way to get his lap back, something they'd been trying to do since almost the start of the race. John Andretti was charging his way up to the field and made a bold move as he actually got on the apron getting into turn three to pass Rusty Wallace and moved up to the fifth position. DJ made it three wide on Rusty and Derek Cope entering turn one. And the hard racing continued throughout the field. With 40 laps to go or 100 miles left and three quarters of the race completed, Mark Martin continued to lead. Ward Burton was in second. Michael Waltrip was in third. Ernie Irvin was fourth. John Jenny was running fifth, Dale Jarrett was sixth, Derek Cope was seventh, Jeff Gordon was eighth, Ted Musgrave was ninth, and Dale Earnhardt worked his way back up to the 10th position. So you have to remember that although Dale Arner had an extremely strong car, he had stayed out about eight to 10 laps longer than that last green flag exchange of pit stops. Although this would have put him in position to be able to make it all the way on fuel, he lost a lot of ground to the leaders while he stayed out. So when that yellow flag came out, Earnhardt still knew he had to come in and get tires because it's so slick and hot at Daytona. And when he took tires, it mired him even further back from the field. So the ESPN broadcast came back from commercial and Benny Parsons was reporting that Jeff Gordon seemed to finally have his car working right and moving back up through the field. No sooner did Benny say that, that Jeff Gordon brushed the wall off of turn two, then came back together to hit the wall again. He spun down the back stretch, came across the racetrack right in front of his teammate Terry Labonte, who missed him. But it also had collected Derek Cope too, as well. Cope spun, but didn't really have much major damage on the race car. Sterling Marlin was able to race hard back to the caution flag and finally get his lap back. Gordon was extremely fortunate. He had hit the outside wall across turn off of turn two, come all the way across the racetrack probably had about 10 different cars that could have hit him that did not hit him. He did have some pretty significant damage to the right front fender. Everingham was pretty certain that Gordon was going to have to take his car behind the wall, but the crew was able to change the tires and they didn't think that there was major suspension damage and they were able to change the tires and keep Gordon on the lead lap. They had decided that they felt like the car could still run respectable and with less than 40 laps to go, even if Gordon was losing a second a lap, it would be unlikely that it would be lapped. And if he could stay out there and there was a big wreck or other attrition that happened in the race, Gordon would be in a position to at least pick up some positions and hopefully not get hurt in the points quite as much as he would have been. So Gordon's spin ultimately brought out the caution. It was the third caution of the race on lap 126. And the race would restart with 130 laps completed or 30 laps to go. The green flag came back out on lap 130, and the top seven runners were Mark Martin in the lead, Ward Burden was running second, Michael Waltrip was in third, John Andretti was fourth, Ernie Irvin was fifth, Dale Jarrett was sixth, and Dale Earnhardt was running seventh. John Andretti wasted no time as he was able to get around Michael Waltrip in turn one to move into the third position, and then coming off of turn two, he passed Ward Burden to get himself into the second position. Dale Jarrett and Ernie Irvin had moved up to the fourth and fifth position and give a call to Dick Trickle was having a great day. He had raced his way into the top 10 in his number, high, number 90 High Lake Myers sponsored Ford Thunderbird for Junie Donlevy Levy with 29 laps left in the race. It was clear that Jeff Gordon had significant damage on his car. He was well off the pace and nowhere near the lead draft. John Andretti was determined to get to the lead, and he wasn't going to wait to the last minute. He actually got in the apron heading into turn one, wasn't able to make the pass on Mark Martin, but Mark Martin pushed up in the middle of the corner. The two cars raced side-by-side side down the backstretch and into turn three. Bill Elliott, who was a lap down, actually decided to get behind John Andretti and push him to the lead in the trioval with 24 laps to go. This had broken a string of 26 consecutive laps led by Mark Martin. It was reported by the pit reporters that Bill Elliott had helped John Andretti pass with the idea that if there would be another caution that Andretti would back off and allow Bill Elliott to get one of his laps back. The racing continued to, to get hard back behind John Andretti and Michael Waltrip was now in the second position with Mark Martin third. Dale Jarrett was in fourth and Dale Arnott was in fifth. With 20 laps to go in the race, Dale Earnhardt, Dale Jarrett, Mark Martin, and Ward Burden all passed Michael Waltrip. Sterling Marlin, amazingly, after not getting his lap back all that long ago, had already raced his way back into the top 10. He had gained 20 spots in just 10 green flag laps of racing. It would be more bad luck for Michael Waltrip. He got forced into the grass while the ESPN race was on commercial. When he had touched wheels with Dick Trickle, off of the second corner as a result michael waltrip had to significantly slow down as there was still grass on the backstretch at daytona and by the time he got his car going again he had been mired deep in the field with 12 laps to go john andretti continued to lead Dale art was second dale jarrett was in third mark martin was in fourth and dick trickle was in fifth the top eight drivers were in a single foul formation with nine laps to go Dick Trickle got side-by-side with Sterling Marlin, trying to race his way into the top five, but there would ultimately be no change in position. Mark Martin got shuffled back to the seventh position as Trickle, Sterling Marlin, and Terry Labonte moved up to fourth, fifth, and sixth. Dale Earnhardt decided it was time to go with seven laps left in the race, and he actually attempted to move to the outside of John Andretti in turn one, but he wasn't able to make the pass. Meanwhile, Dale Jarrett had squeezed in front of Dick Trickle, and when Jarrett squeezed in front of Trickle, Trickle had to back off, and this allowed Sterling Marlin to pass Dick Trickle on the back stretch. With five laps to go, Sterling Marlin was still trying to desperately work his way back up through the field. Dale Jarrett decided to try to get to the outside of Dale Earnhardt in turn two, but there was a crash behind the leaders that occurred in turn one. John Andretti was able to easily get back to the caution flag first, Dale Earnhardt was in second. Dale Jarrett was in third. Sterling Marlin was fourth. Terry Labonte was fifth. Dick Trickle was sixth. Ward Burton was in seventh. Mark Martin was eighth. Rusty Wallace was in ninth. And Cal Petty had raced his way into the top 10. What had happened to cause this caution was that Ricky Rudd was trying to get inside of Ernie Irvin and he unfortunately spun out on his own getting into turn one. He hit the outside wall and collected Michael Waltrip who had already had that bad luck of touching wheels with Dick Trickle and losing a bunch of stretch spots on the backstretch. In addition, the number 77 car being driven by Morgan Shepherd and the number eight car of Hutch Strickland also were involved in the wreck as they tried to get to the bottom of the racetrack. It was a bitter pill to swallow for, for Hutch Strickland. He had been having a pretty strong race early in the going in the top ten, but a poor pit stop had mired him back in the field. The fourth caution of the race came out on lap 157 and the TV broadcast at first assumed that they would not be able to clean the track up in time. But NASCAR somehow was able to get the track cleaned up in time, and it meant that the green and white flag would be shown at the same time, and the drivers would have one lap to race for the checkered flag. We knew that this lap would be at reduced speed because the restrictor plate engines at that time took at least a full lap to get up to full song. Tony Fur was very concerned because he knew that Dale Earnhardt, who was running second, would likely lag back on the restart. And he tried to lag back, but John and Jetty brought the field down super slow, and he knew that he had a good gearbox, and his transmission was working well, and he would probably be able to get a good start. Now, it's also important that you don't get too good a start and get out in front of the leaders, because sometimes they can catch you on the backstretch. Well, that slow start gave Dale Jarrett the opportunity to swing to the inside of Dale Earnhardt for the second position in turn one. Meanwhile, Sterling Marlin decided to make it three wide, but this unfortunately killed the momentum for both Sterling Marlin and Dale Jarrett. Terry Labone was up on the far outside, and he moved into the second position as the cars entered turn three, and Dale Earnhardt was in third. Ward Burton down the back stretch was trying to make it three wide, and as he came back up on the racetrack, he unfortunately got turned by Mark Martin and also collected Dick Trickle. More on this accident in a second, the massive wreck in turn three had occurred behind the leaders. And remember, at this time in NASCAR Winston Cup racing, drivers raced back to the caution flag, or in this case, the checkered flag. The field was not frozen. and Andretti came off a of turn four, leading Terry Labonte by about one to one and a half car lengths. And he easily got back to the checkered flag first to pick up his first NASCAR Winston Cup win. Terry Labonte finished second. The third place finisher was Sterling Marlin, who had just barely edged out Dale Earnhardt, who had finished fourth. John Andretti had picked up his first NASCAR Winston Cup win. Now let's talk a little bit about the big accident that had occurred in turn three. What had happened was, is down the backstretch, Ward Burden had gotten a great run, and he was kind of on the apron as he was trying to enter into turn three, but he got his car back up the racetrack. Unfortunately, no one is going to give an inch on the last lap, and Mark Martin unintentionally hooked Ward Burden. That sent Burden up the racetrack, and it took out Ward Burden, Mark Martin, and Dick Trickle. This was extremely disappointing for all three drivers. Ward Burton and Dick Trickle looked poised to have their best finish of the NASCAR Winston Cup season, and Mark Martin was likely going to leave with the points lead had he not been involved in that accident. Now let's talk about more about the first-time winner, John Andretti. So this was the second first-time winner of the 1997 NASCAR Winston Cup season. Jeff Burton had picked up his first career victory at the inaugural race at Texas Motor Speedway in April. For John Andretti, he picked up his first win in his 110th start, and he joined an elite group as a driver who had a NASCAR Cup Series victory and a win in a major IndyCar Series. His uncle Mario had done that, winning the Daytona 500 and Indy 500 both once, and was also a world driving champion in Formula One. Other drivers who had pulled off the double included A.J. Foyt, Parnelli Jones, and Johnny Mance, who had won the inaugural Southern 500. John Andretti also gave Cale Yarborough his first victory as a car owner in his 293rd effort. This seemed like an extremely popular victory in the garage area. John Andretti seemed very well-liked among his peers, and this was a win that a lot of people could feel good about. A couple interesting facts and thoughts about John Andretti's victory at Daytona. He would leave Daytona 24th in points. This appears to probably be the lowest that any driver had been in points after a victory in the 1990s in NASCAR Winston Cup racing. Ward Burton had been 22nd in points after he had won the fall Rockingham race in 1995. And Cal Petty, when he won the first race at Dover in the 1995 season, was 23rd in points. Also, interesting about John Andretti's victory was how poorly he had run in the previous races. Andretti had had just one top five finish in the past seven races. That was a fourth place finish at Talladega. This seemed to be like a popular victory in the garage area as John Andretti seemed to be extremely well-liked. Tragically, we would lose John Andretti in January of 2020 at the age of 56 when he passed away due to colon cancer. His other highlight in his NASCAR Winston Cup career was his only other victory, spoiler alert. It happened at the 1999 Martinsville race in the spring when he took the King, the victory lane. Terry Labonte came home second, equaling his best finish of the season, which had also occurred at the Daytona 500. He did not lead any laps. Sterling Marlin raced his way up to third place, which was very impressive because he was a lap down for much of the race after that early flat tire. It was the first top five of the season for Sterling Marlin since the Daytona 500. Dale Earnhardt got another top five, coming home fourth and leading seven laps. It was the second-best finish of the season, only behind that second-place run at Talladega when Mark Martin was the winner. Dale Jarrett came home fifth, but he had still yet to lead a lap in a restrictor plate race, which was pretty stunning for the 1997 season. Second-best ever run on a restrictor plate race for Rusty Wallace, he came home sixth. It was the best finish of the season for Cal Petty, he was seventh. Jeff Burton came home eighth after his brother was involved in that wild crash on the last lap. Ernie Irvin was ninth. Bobby Labonte had a solid day in 10th. We didn't hear much from Kenny Wallace, but he came up to finish 11th. Ted Musgrave finished his 12th. Jeremy Mayfield was 13th. Old DW came home 14th. And although Ken Schrader brought out a caution in the race and had damage to the right side of his car, he was able to come home in the 15th position. Other notable finishers included Dave Marcus, who came home 17th, one of the best finishes for him on the season. David Green was the best finishing rookie. He came home 19th. Jeff Gordon finished 21st, which wasn't a great finish, but was much better than when he was poised to finish when that caution came out on the last lap due to that huge wreck. Gordon was going to almost certainly finish outside the top 30, so he easily picked up at least 10 positions due to that last lap crash, and that's about 30 points in the NASCAR Winston Cup standings. Dick Trickle, who had had an absolutely great day, because of that late race wreck on the last lap came home 25th disappointment for ward Burton; he came home 26 mark martin as we talked about was poised to get the points lead but the crash relegated him back to 27th position and mike skinner who started from the pole finished in the 42nd position the race took just over two hours and 32 minutes to complete there were four cautions for 16 laps There were 10 lead changes among 16 drivers. As we talked about earlier, John Andretti led 113 laps, including the final 24 laps of the race. The average speed of the race was just under 158 miles an hour. As much jubilation as there had to be in victory lane, as John Andretti picked up his first career NASCAR Winston Cup win in truly underdog fashion, on the opposite end of the spectrum, there had to be bitter disappointment for a handful of drivers. One of those drivers had to be Michael Waltrip. He had had a very strong car almost the entire race, had run among the top five, and at times the top three, even in the last 30 or so laps of the race. He was racing hard with Dick Trickle, and of course, the two cars kind of touched wheels, and that sent Michael Waltrip out of control, down the back, stretching through the grass. He had to back off. By the time he got his car going again, he was well to the back of the lead lap. And then, to add insult to injury, he got collecting that next to last caution for Dick trickle. It had to be a massive disappointment. The 1997 season had been very disappointing for him. He was having by far one of his best runs of the season with a great chance to finish in the top five and at a minimum finish in the top 10 when he got wrecked in turn three of the final lap. Ditto for Ward burden. Ward had had some good runs earlier in the season, most memorably at Pocono where he had extremely strong car, but fell out of the race due to an engine problem while leading. Ward was poised to get his best finish of the season when he got caught up in the wreck too as well. There also had to be a lot of disappointment for Mark Martin. Martin looked like he was on his way to getting the points lead. With just two corners to get through, he was wrecked, and it cost him an opportunity to be in the points lead for the first time since the 1991 season. So when we take a look at those points standings, Jeff Gordon was able to hang on to the points lead due to his crew's fast work of repairing the race car, not losing the lap, and then being so far in the back of the field that he was able to avoid that big wreck on the last lap and pick up about 10 to 12 positions. Terry Labonte's strong second-place finish had allowed him to gain 59 points on Jeff Gordon, and he now trailed Gordon by 54 points. The last wreck had been massively disappointing for Mark Martin. He looked like he was poised to be the points leader. Instead, he would have to settle for third in points, 110 points behind Jeff Gordon. Dale Jarrett had gotten things back on track, after that swoon, which included disappointment at the Talladega race, at the Coca-Cola 600, where he had a late race engine problem, another engine problem the following week at Dover, he had gotten on track with some great, good, but not great finishes with solid days at Pocono, at Michigan, at California, and now at Daytona. And if Jared could get things going, he certainly was still a serious contender for the championship, only 122 points back and forth place. Jeff Burton and Dale Earnhardt were technically tied for the NASCAR Winston Cup, fifth position in points, 287 points back, but Burton gets the tiebreaker due to his victory in the inaugural race at Texas. Bobby Labonte sent seventh in points, Ricky Rudd was eighth, Jeremy Mayfield was ninth, and Ted Musgrave was tenth. Michael Waltrip's late race problems had dropped him out of the top ten. So I want to thank everyone again for joining us for the Stock Car Racing Time Machine podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's broadcast. Uh, if you're listening to this, hope you have a great, safe Independence Day. And we'll see you next week when we take a look at the first race of the 1997 NASCAR Winston Cup season at New Hampshire, the Jiffy Loop 300. Thanks for listening.